0: NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. When toxic facilities want to move into disadvantaged neighborhoods, opponents often face uphill battles. Now California is imposing strict guidelines on such development plans, and this approach could become the national standard.
1: Definitely. This should be the guidance for environmental justice for the next 10
2: to 20 years.
0: Also, complaints from congressional Democrats that the Bush administration is ignoring
3: the law in its efforts to promote its clean air bill. The Environmental Protection Agency is not supposed to be out there advertising and propagandizing the American people through paid advertising.
0: And why carnivores can't help themselves when it comes to seeing humans as
4: prey. It's like you're on Atkins and there's this donut on the table. The next minute, despite your best intentions, the donut is gone.
0: Animals gone wild and more this week on Living on Earth. First this...
1: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We begin our program this week with a look at the latest evolution of the environmental movement. The image of the environmentalist as the weekend-hiking, bird-watching, affluent white suburbanite is changing – a growing number of environmental activists are brown and black and yellow and red. And more and more, the ecology movement is taking cues from folks who have to live with the ill effects of runaway development. In California, the call for environmental justice is influencing policy at the highest levels and is affecting state regulations on air, pesticide use, water, and waste. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet has our story.
5: Few could remember a hearing quite like one in Oakland recently. Young Latino activists, military base mothers, and Laotian grandparents converged by the busload on the offices of the California Environmental Protection Agency. They came looking for recognition that their communities are unfairly polluted and a remedy to ease their burden. My name is Esther Guzman. My name is Esther Guzman. Today I've come to demand that you make the regulations for locating new facilities stricter. My children are sick. One of them had to have sinus surgery when she was just two years old. You've sent around mobile asthma clinics that hand out claritin and inhalers, but the problem itself never goes away. (laughs) Speaker after speaker pressed California officials to adopt a statewide environmental justice policy that requires detailed analysis of the cumulative impact new industrial projects have on neighborhoods. They also want a greater say over whether such projects should be considered in the first place. Michelle Pritchard is with the Liberty Hill Foundation in Los Angeles, which has been channeling funds to grassroots environmental groups since the 1980s.
6: I think it's a major turning point. Community activists, academic scholars, policy experts have been working for many, many years to try to put something like this on paper to really create some standards that provide equal protection for all communities with regard to the risks that are posed by environmental pollutants.
5: What that means exactly is that developers who want to locate a waste disposal plant or build a new factory near neighborhoods where there are already heavy emissions or tainted water may soon have to answer a whole new set of questions and prove to regulators that they've listened to community concerns. Romel Pasquale, whose title at California's EPA is Deputy Secretary for Environmental Justice, reels off some of the questions regulators will be posing to developers.
7: It's have you have you looked at other locations have you really looked at it i think Mm -hmm. it's a question tell us have you looked at it demonstrate to us that there are not other places what kind how did you do
8: those meetings what kinds of meetings did you have did you really sit out there and talk with folks or did you simply have posted a meeting and hope that people showed up
5: Thank you to everybody who has spoken to the committee so far, and thank you for... In the end, only one person representing California's businesses voted against the new environmental justice guidelines. That lopsided tally reflects a new reality in California environmental politics, one in which emerging community groups are gaining some unexpected allies. the 29th floor of pg and the electric utility that has powered San Francisco for 100 years. pg and has its own environmental image problems. It was portrayed as the water-poisoning villain in the movie Aaron Brockovich, and residents who live near pg and power plants blame the company for high asthma rates. But pg and Vice President for Environmental Affairs Robert L. Harris sat on the committee that drafted the new environmental justice guidelines, and he voted for them. Part of it, he says, is just good corporate policy. Part of it was also that activists backed down on one of their key issues, the precautionary principle. Put simply, environmental justice groups wanted the government and business to err on the side of caution, to look for non-toxic alternatives even when a product hasn't been proven to be harmful. But they opted for pragmatism and accepted language that promises something less, a precautionary approach, a term no one has yet defined
0: the environmental community did move significantly, environmental justice community, I should say, on that particular issue because there were some people who felt strongly that it should be a precautionary principle language with all of the baggage that it brings with it. To move to a precautionary approach was a significant uh, change, I believe, uh, for them.
5: Support like this from the 29th floor is becoming more common. The decision makers are not as monochromatic as they once were. That's another reason the environmental justice agenda has migrated from the kitchen table to the boardroom. But not all businesses signed on to a document they believe will present a whole new set of hurdles and uncertainty. Chemical companies lobbied hard against it. Cindy Tuck of the California Council for Environmental and Economic Balance cast the lone dissenting vote and says business will continue to fight even a watered-down version of the precautionary principle.
6: You're talking about regulating based on Allegations of harm as opposed to credible information or good science. And it talks about shifting the burden of proof to the proponent of the project. And there's a concern that it's not possible to prove a negative.
5: Unlike the past, however, the industry view did not prevail. California Governor-elect Arnold Schwarzenegger hasn't spelled out his views on environmental justice yet, but the combination of existing statute and the growing push from community groups means this shift is likely to continue. Diane Takvorian chaired the California EPA committee.
9: Definitely. This should be the guidance
1: for environmental justice for the next 10 to 20 years.
5: Meanwhile, a national EPA Environmental Justice Advisory Committee is tackling many of these same questions— so a policy at the federal level probably won't lag far behind California's. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles.
0: Listeners to the Hispanic Radio Network have been hearing a lot about the environment from the Bush administration this month.
6: Planeta Azul (laughs) Mi hijo tiene asma. Llegamos a la sala de emergencias en la madrugada.
0: This paid advertisement is from the Environmental Protection Agency. It touts Clear Skies, the president's bill before Congress to reduce power plant pollution.
7: The
0: ad is part of the agency's educational drive during National Hispanic Heritage Month. Lisa Harrison, EPA spokeswoman, describes the campaign this way.
9: The general gist is, is one of them is specifically focused on asthma, and the sound effects are a child wheezing and a mother discussing um, how her son has asthma, and they often go to the emergency room. And um, her, uh, she believes it's very important that, uh, that uh, the government take steps to reduce air pollution, and the Clear Skies Initiative, if enacted, um, will be required to reduce uh, toxic air emissions by 70% from mercury, sulfur dioxide, and nitrogen dioxide, and again um, urges uh, members of the Spanish speaking community to work for a better environment and uh, log on to EPA's Clear Skies webpage.
0: This message, though, has raised concerns with several members of Congress who say the EPA may have violated federal law. Among them is Democratic Representative Henry Waxman of California, and he joins me
3: from Washington. Uh, Congressman Waxman, what's your concern about these ads? Well, it's really unprecedented for EPA to pay for advertising to promote uh, a legislative proposal. In the past, the Environmental Protection Agency has put out public service announcements uh, that might relate to uh, air pollution issues, but uh, this is uh, using taxpayers' funds for propaganda, for lobbying, uh, to uh, advance a legislative agenda, and it's in violation Of it appears anyway, to be in violation of the prohibition in the appropriations for the EPA because it says specifically no funds can be used for propaganda purposes. And there's also an anti-lobbying act which prohibits federal officials from engaging in campaigns about pending legislative matters. So there's a question whether this whole ad campaign is legal.
0: If the agency has violated these uh, anti-lobbying and the, what's, what's in the appropriations uh, for it. What are the possible repercussions here?
3: The possible repercussions are uh, for the Justice Department to take action and primarily to tell them to, uh, to stop. And we're trying to get to the bottom of it. We're trying to find out who authorized this campaign, how much money is EPA spending, what parts of the country are they targeting. These are the kinds of questions that I think we ought to know more about.
0: Who do you think is responsible for these ads, Congressman?
3: Somebody in the administration who's looking at the fact that uh, the public is starting to see the Bush administration as hostile to environmental protection, even in the area of clean air. And they've targeted, as best we can tell, a very specific group. They've targeted an Hispanic audience. They've run ads on Spanish-language radio. They're doing a full-page ad that we know about in a Spanish-language Newspaper, So it appears that they might have taken polls and said that the Hispanic population, probably no different than the rest of the population, is concerned about the Bush administration's handling of the environment, and they're trying to convince them that they should trust this administration.
0: Lisa Harrison, spokeswoman for the EPA, says the agency is working to meet Congressman Waxman's request. But she argues the agency's ad campaign is within the law.
9: Obviously, we do not agree with the charges. We uh, obviously discuss this with our lawyers, but in our opinion, the public information efforts do not violate the Anti-Lobbying Act or the Appropriations Act lobbying restrictions, specifically because they don't expressly request members of the public to contact Congress in support of the pending Clear Skies legislation, which would be the definition of lobbying.
0: The EPA's ad campaign on Hispanic radio is scheduled to run through the end of October. Just ahead, how humans are changing the ecosystem in ways that promote infectious diseases. First, this environmental health note from Diane Toomey.
2: Most teenagers in the United States work at some point during their school years. And a new study shows that compared to adults, children are more likely to become ill from occupational exposure to disinfectants. Researchers gathered five years' worth of data from the state of California and poison control centers across the country. They found more than 300 youths had become ill at work from disinfectants during that time. That's about four times the annual rate for adults. None of the exposures were serious, but more than 20% were considered moderate. For instance, one 17-year-old girl suffered corneal burns after accidentally splashing her face with disinfectant. In most cases, the youths were not wearing basic protective equipment such as gloves or goggles. One industry stands out as being particularly prone to these types of accidents. Although just about a third of California youths worked in restaurants, that industry accounted for more than half of the reported disinfectant illnesses in that state. The authors say that their results point to the need for better education of employers, parents, and working children on the hazards of chemical exposure in the workplace, and perhaps stronger regulations as well. That's this week's Health Note. I'm Diane Toomey.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. They are the monsters we love to fear. Werewolves and vampires. Half human, half beast that are everywhere in modern culture from horror flicks to Halloween costumes. What you may not know is that forerunners of these chimera creations were the subjects of some of the world's oldest human
7: artwork. There are a lot in Australia with kangaroo heads. And then other kind of creatures in Australia, flying foxes, which are a kind of of fruit bat. Particularly you get fruit bat heads on uh, human bodies.
0: Archaeologist Christopher Chippendale has studied more than 5,000 rock drawings in Australia, South Africa, and North America, dating back 12,000 years. He found only one common theme, drawings of human bodies with animal parts. The reason, he says, may lie in psychology.
7: People have to deal with the dark, they have to deal with mysterious things that happen in the night, and so they make a world in which the animals are part, and they make a world in which the animals and human beings um, interact.
0: Mr. Chippendale sees a link between these early fantasies and the monsters that haunt us today.
7: We don't really believe in imaginary things, but there's still a sense of this in vampires and zombies, and otherwise they crop up in the movies as something to frighten with, you even that you know they're only pretend.
0: And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac. <laughs> From the cattle carcasses of mad cow disease to the surgical masks of SARS, it's hard to forget the images of the world's modern epidemics. International labs are trying to find the biological origins of these fast-spreading and, many cases, deadly diseases. But Mark Jerome Walters says that, in part, we are to blame for the scourge. Dr. Walters is a Florida-based journalist trained in veterinary medicine, and he's written a new book about the human impact on emerging diseases. It's called Six Modern Plagues and How We Are Causing Them, and he joins me now. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Mark, in your book, uh, you coined the term uh, ecodemic. Could you explain what this is?
10: We have traditionally used the term uh, epidemics or pandemics to describe diseases, and The more I learned about these, the more I came to realize the profound human hand in the emergence and spread of these diseases. And it seemed to me that we were just too often letting ourselves off the hook by calling them kind of a dispassionate, distant epidemics. And I coined the term ecodemics, number one, to honor the deep ecological roots of these diseases, and also in the hope of trying to shift some of the responsibility for these to human beings and away from nature. You write that Epidemics
0: historically come in waves brought on in part by human activity. Uh, can you trace some history of this for us, please?
10: Now, when people first began to coalesce into settlements and domesticate animals uh, thousands of years ago, we really set up a situation where a number of diseases jumped to human beings. For example, you know, cattle were the original source of uh, smallpox. We saw it's widely believed that the common cold came from horses, measles from a um, mutant distemper virus in dogs, and even leprosy is uh, believed to have arisen at this time. 500 years or so ago, as the Europeans and others began exploring the globe, we know some of the stories about the you know, terrible plagues that were introduced to the Americas, to the Pacific, to Hawaii, for example, And to Africa, well, 150 years ago, we saw that increased immunity and some medical advances had really brought a dramatic decline in infectious disease. But now in the past 20 or 30 years, we have seen what is likely to be another great wave of epidemics.
0: Can you give me just a brief rundown of the various human impacts that contribute to epidemics?
10: Sure. I think that industrialized agriculture is certainly one of the the most significant. We've seen that in mad cow disease. And we also see an element of the industrialized agriculture affecting the spread of West Nile virus. One of the reasons that the outbreak was so severe recently in Colorado, where more than 40 people have died, is because a mosquito that carries it out there breeds very well in irrigation ditches. It is used in the farmland out there. Forest degradation, that is, well-documented its close ties with the emergence of Lyme disease, which, after all, has become the most common disease in the United States, spread by a, a vector, a tick. And in many of these, we see the whole idea of globalization and, and rapid spread, whether it's spreading salmonella through the distribution of cattle feed or SARS, which was spread very quickly from Hong Kong you know, through global travel on airplanes and elsewhere.
0: What kind of diseases do you see coming in the wake of climate change?
10: We are probably apt to see a number of diseases spread because the climate changes and makes one area more hospitable than it was before. For example, with malaria, which is appearing in new parts of the world and appearing in places where we thought we had had it completely eliminated. For example, in Virginia, where not long ago it was found for the first time in more than 20 years in both people and mosquitoes.
0: You mentioned salmonella. Tell us, why is it such a
10: problem? Salmonella, there is a long history of that causing food poisoning in people. And the interesting thing, as new waves and different types of salmonella emerged, they seem to follow the introduction of certain antibiotics into agriculture. And so we've had lesson you know, time and time again. You use a certain class or a family of drugs to treat animals, to help them grow faster. And within months or perhaps years, you begin to see antibiotic-resistant salmonella in people. And so... It's both the most recent form of salmonella, which is called DT-104, emerged, and it was resistant to five different antibiotics and some of the most powerful antibiotics we had on the market.
0: Mark, what diseases do you see on the horizon where human impacts uh, on the environment are to blame?
10: We see other viruses tooling around elsewhere in the world that have caused very few deaths but have the potential for something quite large the Nipah virus, for example, in Malaysia. Here's a virus that was originally carried by bats and did not seem to uh, affect humans or, or any other species, and bats, because they had carried it so long, were essentially immune. Well, because of forest, uh, burning of forest and climatic events and the failure of the natural fruit crop for these bats, bats, they were forced to change their migration route. And that brought them to cultivated orchards where there were also a lot of pigs. Then they infected pigs. Pigs apparently infected humans. Now, if that were to uh, emerge in the U.S., it would be an enormous problem, both in terms of public health and economic. And I do know some epidemiologists, that is their disease. They seem to fear most. And that is why I think there is an increasing trend to try to understand the ecological part of these diseases. And I think it's tremendously encouraging when you see this new level of collaboration and sharing of knowledge. For example, ornithologists become as important in the equation of understanding a new human disease as an epidemiologist. That is progress. And that is bound to take us, in my view, somewhere much better than we have been.
0: Mark Jerome Walters is a journalist and author of Six Modern Plagues and How We Are Causing Them. Thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you. This year, Living on Earth has been following research underway at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and the University of Cincinnati. Scientists there are trying to understand how lead can affect development, intelligence, and even criminal behavior in young people. And each research team in the project has a member whose contribution is essential but doesn't get much recognition. Living on Earth, Cynthia Graeber has this profile of one such unsung hero.
6: Rick Horning sits at his desk in a windowless office, surrounded by stacks of paper, a computer, and books with titles such as Linear Models in Clinical Trials, Advanced Calculus, and Case Studies in Biometry. Horning says at cocktail parties, he describes his work this way.
11: I would be the guy that would say, what is the risk of lung cancer if you smoke so many packs of cigarettes a day for so many years of your life. That's usually where I stop because beyond that they probably lose interest.
6: (laughs) It's a simple explanation of what seems to be a complicated job, a biostatistician. Horning began his training with the study of math and followed with statistics. He received a doctorate in biostatistics, which brings science into the mix to pull it all together. A biostatistician, he says, uses these skills in the initial stages of research. At that point, the aim is to help scientists choose the type of study that would best tease out the answers to their questions.
11: There's uh, dozens of different types of designs that could be considered, and so my job is to try to steer the group to a design that's not only doable but will sort of yield the maximal amount of information regarding the hypotheses that they want to test.
6: For example, for the study of lead's effects on children's IQ, the researchers chose to conduct a longitudinal study. This means they'll follow their subjects over a relatively long-term period, in this case, five years. Horning also helped the scientists figure out how large the study group would need to be to ensure that a drop in IQ is actually from lead and not from some other factor in the subjects' lives. In other words, the number of study subjects that would ensure a statistically significant result. So he asked researchers what they would consider a significant drop in IQ. He took this number and the length of the study into consideration.
11: Given those things, then there are mathematical functions involved probabilities and things of that nature that you can use to say, well, in order to do that, we'll need a certain amount of subjects in, in let's say, the lower and high exposed uh, area in order to be able to detect that difference.
6: As the study progresses, Horning does preliminary analyses to check how well the data is being collected. He's at that stage now with the study on the effects of childhood lead exposure on adult antisocial behavior.
11: We have, oh, something more than half of the data collected, and we kind of want to take a peek and see how things are are going and uh, give us some hints as to how we should analyze the data when it's completely collected.
6: At the end of the study, Horning will look at all of the information about each subject, including factors such as income and education level, and tease out the effects of lead.
11: And then it's the job of the statistician to use mathematical or statistical models to isolate the effect that you're looking for. In this case, let's say lead on delinquency, lead on criminal conduct and juvenile delinquency and things of that nature, and correct for socioeconomic status, for example.
6: That sounds really hard to me.
11: That's why they pay us a lot. (laughs) I don't want to sound like I'm bragging about our profession, but it is difficult. It takes years of training, a lot of experience to do these sorts of things. Thankfully, now with the age of incredible computer power, a lot of the analyses that we can do now, just 20 or 30 years ago, couldn't be done.
6: Some people might think that scientists do their own analyses of the data in their research. And the truth is, most scientists do have statistical training. But multifaceted studies that involve all the complications of human life call for the type of skill that Horning brings to the team. Douglas Riss is the neuropsychologist who's working with Horning on the study of lead's effects on antisocial behavior.
7: Most scientists don't have that kind of expertise that they need to handle these large data sets, these complicated data sets. The biostatistician is um, often works behind the scenes, but... Um, Their critical role is very much appreciated by the rest of the investigators, and uh, we all know that we can't get along without it.
6: And Horning's grasp of numbers and of details has served him well in other aspects of his life. He's a good poker player, he's also a top notch vacation planner. He tells a story of a two week boat trip through America's southern riverways that eventually brought him to a dock in Florida on the Gulf of Mexico. He had to figure out when to meet up with the owner. The owner suggested that Horning call when he got close.
11: And I said, uh, that's okay, I'll be there at noon on a certain day. And he said, yeah, right. And uh, I pulled up to the slip at like one minute after 12 on that day. (laughs) This guy was totally amazed.
6: But Horning acknowledges that most people wouldn't understand why he finds his work so exciting.
11: I say this to people who are not statisticians and they look at me like I'm crazy, but I say, I'm having a lot of fun doing this and... You think, fun, how could this be fun? But if you work on a lot of different studies, then you know that some simply are more interesting or more intriguing or more challenging than others, and some indeed answer, in my view anyway, much more important questions for our society than others.
6: And right now, Horning says, figuring out how and at what levels lead affects us is one of those particularly challenging, intriguing, and important questions that he can help answer. For Living on Earth, I'm Cynthia Graber.
0: And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth.
6: Funding for Living on Earth comes from
1: the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of marine issues, and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. Support also comes from NPR member stations and Bob Williams and Meg Caldwell, honoring NPR's coverage of environmental and natural resource issues and in support of the NPR Presidents' Council. And Paul and Marsha Ginsburg in support of excellence in public radio.
0: Given the recent spate of dramatic attacks, October would appear to be a month of animals behaving badly. But commentator Cy Montgomery says don't blame the critters.
4: First, one of Siegfried and Roy's famous white tigers critically injures the illusionist, biting him during a performance. Next, a tiger in New York bites a man with whom he was sharing a Harlem apartment, along with a five-foot alligator, by the way. And the following week, we learn that a grizzly bear has mauled to death a researcher and his girlfriend in Alaska. These stories have easily eclipsed most other news. No wonder. Tigers and bears are far more interesting than, say, politicians, for the simple reason that until quite recently in our evolution, if you weren't interested in big predators, you quickly became a snack for one. Which brings me to what is puzzling. People keep asking me, what made the animals do it? In Roy Horn's case, images from a video suggest he actually slipped... ...and the cat might have been trying to pick him up. Maybe so. But even very polite predators who might know and love you are still predators. Catching prey is fundamental to who they are. Sometimes they just can't resist. It's like you're on Atkins and there's this donut on the table... The next minute, despite your best intentions, the donut is gone. Not one of the people hurt or killed by these huge predators blamed the animals. Roy Horn's words as he was taken to the hospital were, Don't hurt the cat. As he was hauled off by police, the man bitten by the tiger in his apartment said, The cat is like my brother. And biologist Timothy Treadwell, in one of the stunning videos he made about bears, thanks a grizzly named Quincy for not eating him. If Quincy had eaten me, he says, good cause, he's a nice bear. The tragedy behind the tragedies is this. We have forgotten the true nature of wild predatory animals. Precisely because they can kill us, these are the beasts who thrill, horrify, challenge, inspire, and humble us. They enlarge our capacity for wonder and reverence. No matter what else these folks might have done wrong, and keeping a tiger in an apartment is very wrong, they all had one thing right. The very fact of their involvement with these animals shows they remembered we need wildness in our world. In very different settings, all these people were trying, with different degrees of success, to touch in some way the magnificent wildness of predators. To do so was worth to them a very great price.
0: Commentator Cy Montgomery is author of The Man-Eating Tigers of Shunderba. Just ahead, the U.S. Senate gets ready to take on global warming. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu.
12: What began as a conversation between two scientists in seemingly unconnected fields may one day end up as a new way to produce energy from water. Daniel Kwok studies electrokinetic phenomena, and Larry Kostick studies how energy is created. These two scientists, who hail from Alberta, Canada, knew that when a liquid meets a solid, the surface of the liquid becomes negatively charged. So they wondered if they pushed water through an extremely tiny tube to get the negative charge at one end, will the opposite end of the tube get a positive charge? To test their theory, the researchers needed a substance with a great many nanoscale tubes running through. So they chose the naturally porous substance, clay. Their two-inch-long ceramic tube contained up to a million minuscule channels running through it. And when Kwok and Caustic pushed highly pressurized water through the channels, they created, as expected, a negative charge at one end of the tube and, surprise, a positive one at the other end, enough energy to power two small LED light bulbs. More research needs to be done to figure out the most efficient way to take advantage of this phenomenon. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Jennifer Chu.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And coming up, giving native bees their due down on the farm. But first, the U.S. Senate will soon have its first vote on whether to mandate reductions in the emissions of greenhouse gases. Connecticut Democrat and presidential candidate Joe Lieberman and Arizona Republican John McCain are co-sponsoring the Climate Stewardship Act, which calls for modest cuts in carbon dioxide and other gases that scientists say contribute to global warming. Living on Earth's Washington correspondent Jeff Young joins us now to talk about the bill. Jeff, Senators McCain and Lieberman changed their bill earlier this month. Why did they do that, and what does the bill now call for?
8: It originally called for reductions in greenhouse gases in two phases with two target dates. They had modest cuts by the year 2010 and stiffer cuts in the following six years. The senators removed the second, more ambitious phase reductions. So what the Senate will vote on is basically a decrease of about one and a half percent from today's emissions. That's far milder than the cuts in the Kyoto Protocol. They simplified the bill because they want a simple vote. It's now pretty much a yes or no question on climate change. Should we do something about this or not?
0: Jeff, almost no one expects this bill to pass the Senate, much less to, uh, to win approval by the more conservative House.
8: So why is it important? Well, the senators and their supporters say it's a long journey. It has to start with the first step, and this is it. Here's Senator McCain explaining what he expects from the vote.
10: We hope uh, to get a substantial number. We've had more and more people sign on, but it's an uphill battle. All of the special interests will be arrayed against it. So, but we'll keep fighting. It took seven years to do campaign finance reform, but we'll win on this one over time.
8: And that's a reference to McCain's battle to reform campaign finance, another bipartisan effort that seemed pretty hopeless at the outset. And he says the first step is getting senators on the record on the issue. Now, Jeff,
0: tell me now how this bill would work. What's the mechanism for reducing emissions?
8: It's what's called a cap-and-trade approach. The government mandates a total limit on, say, CO2, and then allots permits to major industries for each ton of that emission. The companies can buy and sell those permits just so long as they have enough permits to cover their emissions. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's probably because this is the same system that was used very successfully and economically to reduce sulfur dioxide emissions. The bill would also allow companies to bank their leftover pollution credits and get credit for capturing carbon dioxide, something called carbon sequestration. And automakers could earn credits by exceeding the federal mileage standards on cars they make. This approach won support from scientists, from business groups and local governments, and about 200 conservation groups. Here's Daniel Lashoff. He's science director for the Natural Resources Defense Council's climate program.
4: It doesn't
0: solve the global warming problem. No one is under an illusion that it will. Uh, But it crosses a fundamental political threshold between a series of voluntary initiatives that we've been undertaking for the last decade that have not been successful in reducing global warming emissions and a mandatory program that can really start the process. Jeff, tell me about the cost here. That's the issue that really seemed to do in the Kyoto Protocol with the Bush administration, concerns about the effects on the U.S. economy.
8: Economists at MIT analyzed this stripped down version of the bill, and they found that the higher energy costs that would result would be would cost about $10 to $20 per American household, and the effects on employment were too small to measure. But the critics say it's a slippery slope that would lead to higher energy costs and trouble for the economy. This is Myron Ebel with the free market think tank called the Competitive Enterprise Institute.
7: It's only not expensive if you think that. The down payment on a product is the only part of the total price. There's no point in starting this system of having limits on carbon dioxide emissions from burning coal, oil and natural gas unless you're going to go further, because at this level, it has no purpose. It doesn't do anything.
8: Supporters, of course, argue it does have a purpose, but they would agree with him that more emissions reductions would be needed. Jeff, what do you think
0: the final count on this vote will be?
8: I couldn't find anyone who would even guess, really. There are 12 bipartisan co-sponsors on the bill, and about the only thing for sure is that any votes for it would be a net gain from the last time the Senate voted on a global warming issue. That was a non-binding resolution six years ago when the Senate voted unanimously against any Kyoto-style treaty on global warming.
0: Well, we'll all be watching. Jeff Young is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. Thank you. You're welcome. Bees pollinate crops worth billions of dollars each year, and they help propagate wild plants as well. It's not just honeybees, a European import, that do this. There are also thousands of bees native to North America that work alongside honeybees to pollinate flowers. But some researchers say native bees are not getting enough buzz for the work they do. Robin White reports from the Agricultural Heartland of Northern California on an attempt to give native bees their due and make space for them on farms. The Cape
13: Valley, about 70 miles from San Francisco, is a little piece of paradise chock-full of organic farms. At the Full Belly Farm, it's harvest season in the tomato fields, and the shoulder-high plants are heavy with red, yellow, and green fruit. Farm laborers work the rows, dropping tomatoes into buckets. It seems like for every plant there are a couple of bees buzzing around, Princeton University bee researcher Sarah Smith is out checking on them. She points out that it's not honeybees, but bumblebees that are doing the work.
4: Honeybees actually can't pollinate tomatoes. The pollen in a tomato flower is stuck up tight inside the flower.
13: But bumblebees have a little trick to get the pollen out.
4: Some kinds of bees do what's called buds pollination, and they buzz their wings in a special way to vibrate with a frequency of middle C, and that releases the pollen.
13: Yes, you heard correctly, the frequency of middle C. The bumblebee is one of two American native bees that can do it. They grab onto the flower with their legs, bite the end of the flower tube with their mouths, and buzz their wings as if their lives depended on it. To show how it works, Smith pulls out a tuning fork.
4: So you buzz the flower with a tuning fork, and then you can see the pollen there coming out. It's kind of pale yellow. That is
13: incredible. Yeah, The flower releases what looks like a small puff of yellow smoke. It's pollen, and it's what the bumblebees take home to their nests, but only after pollinating the tomato plants. Smith says tomato yields increase fourfold when bumblebees are present. She's part of a team that's researching the free contribution native bees make to agriculture. And it's not just bumblebees. There are carpenter bees, digger bees, mason bees, sweat bees. There may be up to 4,000 species of native bees that can pollinate crops. On another part of the farm, Princeton researcher Claire Kremen, who oversees the study, is looking at a bee the size of a large ant flying into a pink blackberry flower.
5: This little bee here is a dialectus species. Just see how teeny it is. And on watermelon, for example... Every time it visits, it, it deposits maybe not more than 10 grains of pollen. But when uh, visited many times
6: by a little teeny dialectus bee, it, it adds up.
13: About 75% of crops need pollination. Farmers can pay beekeepers to truck in honeybees to do the job. It costs about $45 a hive. And a field might need dozens of hives depending on the crop. But not so if your farm has habitat suitable for native bees. Kremen says farms that are close to wild land often have enough native bees to meet all the farmer's pollination needs. At Full Belly Farm, it's not an accident that there are plenty of native bees around. Organic farmer Paul Muller works hard to grow not only plants, but also insects.
10: We've uh, divided our farm into places where we can grow clover underneath our trees. We can have some weedy areas. It's interesting, in weedy borders, you grow a tremendous number of insects.
13: The weeds create continuous blooms so that bees and other beneficial insects always have nectar. The weedy borders don't look neat and tidy. This farm is a rambling mess, but it's alive with buzzing. Muller's been watching the ups and downs of the bees for the last two decades. We saw a general
10: decline in honeybee population for a while, and the bumblebees seem to be much more prominent in our system. Whether that was just a cycle that the bee population was going through, we don't know.
13: In fact, non-native honeybees have been in steady decline for 50 years. Blood-sucking mites have wreaked havoc on their population, and the arrival of the so-called killer bees in border states has scared off some beekeepers. So farmers have an eye out for alternatives. Kremen's team has already found that native bees don't occur naturally on farms that are far from wild land. But they're looking to see if they can reintroduce bumblebees by using wooden boxes that imitate abandoned rodent nests where the bees usually live. To see how they're doing, the researchers trek out in the middle of the night when the bees are more docile. It's warm, and the smell of fresh hay is in the air. At the edge of an orchard, three people huddle around a folding table. They open the square bumblebee boxes. Researcher Neil Williams describes what's inside.
9: You're seeing a mass of
13: small
6: lumps that are sort of whitish-yellow, which are cocoons or large larvae in big masses around, and then some open little pot-shaped things that have glistening substance at the bottom, which is the... um, which is actually the nectar.
13: The researchers take out the bees and place each one in a vial. When they've counted them, it's a race to get the now angry bees back in the colony as quickly as possible.
4: I'm going to go ahead and put these queens back in now. Oh, You can hear buzzing mm-hmm. quite loudly very large bees.
13: The researchers are finding that bumblebee colonies placed on conventional farms don't grow as fast or get as big as those on organic farms. So Kremen is trying to persuade conventional farmers to make their land more bee-friendly by using pesticides more carefully. She's also encouraging them to plant bee habitats such as hedgerows and large swaths of native plants that provide a year-round source of nectar for bees. One of the farms Kremen has been studying is run by Rick Rominger. It's a mix of conventional and organic fields. Today, Kremen's telling Rominger her idea for creating wildlife corridors for bees. She imagines stepping stones of bee habitat across the landscape.
1: And probably the more patches, the better for both
5: nesting and foraging habitat and to sort of deliver the bees closer to where you want
1: them to be operating.
10: It's interesting, I guess, as a farmer. I'd probably ask a real specific question, like, do they want a bank? Do they want a certain you know, right. amount
14: of
13: cover? Right. Kremen tells Rominger that one bee they've studied, the svastra, is ten times better at pollinating than the honeybee. The numbers catch the farmer's attention. He grows sunflowers for seed. But to create the kind of habitat the bees need would take a cash investment.
10: You know, you like to think in the long term, but
9: in our business... You know, if we trip this year, we won't be here next year. And it's it's hard to say, oh, yeah, you know, I'll spend a bunch of money this year and 10 years down the road, you know, it'll be great. Well, it may not quite work out.
13: Advocates say there are multiple payoffs for creating bee habitat on the farm. Hedgerows harbor a range of beneficial insects that keep pests under control and can help reduce pesticide costs. Hedges might also provide new, wild-crafted crops, such as blackberries or rose hips. But the reality is that most farming in this country is done by big business, which may not be as open to change compared to small farmers. And agribusiness will probably need hard data first. So Kremen and her team say they'll go on counting bees, looking for the commercial argument, which will persuade even the bean counters that rewilding the farm is a good idea. For Living on Earth, I'm Robin White in the Cape Valley in Northern California.
4: Um, oops, I think I have one. a bee on me. Okay, Where it Oh, wait. It's in my shirt. Okay. okay. Oh, wait, I've got to get rid of the bio. Good job. Do you need the hand? I'm here. Woo! Woo! It's right here. Okay.
0: There is this convention in biology that says before a species can be declared extinct, one must wait 50 years after a last sighting. But some animals have such small distributions that their extinction is quickly obvious. Such was the case with the Atitlan grebe that inhabited only one place on Earth, Lake Atitlan in the Guatemalan Highlands. This nearly flightless bird likely had been cruising the waters of Lake Atitlan since before the last ice age. But as Tim Flannery explains in the latest installment of our series, A Gap in Nature, a number of factors led to the bird's demise.
15: The Atitlan grebe was smaller than its distant cousin, the loon. Until about 1965, this dark-coloured bird had a relatively stable population of around 800. But soon after that, both small and large bass were introduced into the lake, and these voracious predators ate so many crabs and fish that little was left for the grebe. By 1975, the grebe population had plummeted by 75% and although a conservation program was mounted to try to save the birds, other changes were afoot that would destroy them. The birds' breeding habitat was being removed by reed cutters. To add insult to injury, the lake was being invaded by another competitor, a smaller, related bird known as the pied-billed grebe. In the late 1970s, researchers surveyed how many Atitlan grebes were left by playing a recording of the nighttime breeding call of the male. Any male Atitlan grebe hearing this call would respond, and from that, scientists should have been able to determine the number of breeding pairs still left. The trouble was, the calls of the Pied-billed and Atitlan grebes were very similar. What's worse, the researchers didn't even know that Pied-billed grebes had invaded the lake. So the rosy results of the sound survey made it seem like there was a healthy population of Atitlan grebes. That is, until one day, when the researchers approached some of the birds, which to their horror, flew away. The scientists realised that they had been counting the wrong birds, not the flightless Atitlan, but its smaller, flighted, pied-billed relative. Unlike the Atitlan grebe, the invading Pied-billed grebe found the degraded lake much to its liking, and by the mid-1980s it was breeding there year-round. It may even have mated with the Atitlan grebe, producing hybrids. In any case, by 1989, just two pairs of giant Atitlan grebe inhabited the lake, and none have been seen since.
0: Tim Flannery is author of A Gap in Nature, Discovering the World's Extinct Animals. To see a picture and hear the call of the Atitlan Grebe and other ex-animals, go to our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, more stories about people and predators. In modern America, the two are encountering each other more and more, and often uneasily, as this call to 9-11 attests. I'm on Rattlesnake
14: Trail, okay, and we have two mountain lions following a group
2: of children. They're directly behind us. They're at about 100 feet. Have they attacked anyone? No. I'm sending someone.
0: Stay on the line, okay? Former NPR science reporter David Barron joins me to talk about his new book, The Beast in the Garden, next time on Living on Earth. And between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We leave you this week in Wild Britain. On an October evening near Inverness, Scotland, several rutting deer stags roar against the backdrop of a river. on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Eileen Balinski, Jennifer Chu, Cynthia Graber, Ingrid Lobet, Diane Toomey, and Jeff Young. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Andy Farnsworth mixes the program. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
1: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. Ten percent of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation.
8: This is NPR, National Public Radio.